The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. If you could open up your Bibles to Acts 8. I'm reading from the ESV. If you could follow along as I read. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now there were those who were scattered... Now, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we know that your presence is here. You indwell us as your people. You lead us and guide us. And it's only through you that we can understand. It's only through you that we have spiritual ears and eyes and hearts that can comprehend. So empower us today to to really think hard about what you're trying to say to us and embolden us to to live in imitation of not only the followers of this early church, but of Christ Jesus. Lord, I don't know what's going on specifically in the lives of the saints here at Redeeming Grace, but you do. And so I pray that you would use me to speak into the nooks and the crannies of their lives. And I pray, Father, that that we all would respond uh, in faith with obedience. Convict us of sin. Lord, sanctify us, and um, may everything that I share and this worship um, be entirely glorifying and honoring to you. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts here today be pleasing to you, O Lord, our immovable, unshakable rock and our great Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm going to use three points to walk us through uh, this passage, and I hope it will be helpful to you. I hope that it will help you love the Lord more and obey his word um, as we're called to. We're called to be doers and not just hearers of God's word. These are the three points. If you're a note taker, the church was real about life. Point two, the church went on with its mission. And point three, the church brought joy to enemies. So I listen to the most recent messages from James Capo and, and Pastor Caleb because I wanted to know what, what you guys were specifically hearing. And in, um, just in reading the texts, uh, Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, you learned about the martyrdom of Stephen at the end of chapter 7. His death was a most horrific death. Uh, In a nutshell, you can say that 
crazy, enraged people unjustly lynched the guy. And yet we know, we're assured that it was all within God's plan. And so we can say that it was a glorious death, right? Uh, it was a moving death. Um, and I say that because you, you, you hear the posture of Stephen's heart towards his enemies, who were also enemies of God. You hear, them, you, you hear his heart expressed in his dying words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do these words sound familiar? I hope so, because Luke writes those words straight from the mouth of Jesus in chapter 23 of his first book, verse 34. It says, as he's hanging on the cross, naked, right, um, dying for our sin, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they go on to cast lots to divide his garments, and, and, and Stephen... In his last moments, he's so gripped by the grace of God, he cannot but imitate his Savior and Lord in his words. That's how his heart was postured. We learned earlier in Acts chapter 6, you did, I'm sure, that Stephen was, quote, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And it was, and because of of who he was, Dr. Luke, he elaborates more and, and reveals that, that Stephen was, was a man used by God. He was full of grace and power, and we learned of how God used him to do great wonders and signs among the people. He was a powerful instrument of God's work, of God's revelation. He was, and I'll just list a few things that he seems to have been, he was a brilliant apologist, a defender of the faith. In Acts chapter 6, verse 9 through 10, Luke writes, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. He was, he was uh, you know an apologist uh, of, of, of the greatest um, degree. And it seems like he was also a, ma- a magnificent uh, preacher. I don't know if this was mentioned, but his speech in Acts chapter 7 is the longest recorded discourse in the entire book of Acts. You have many sermons, many, many um, speeches given by Powerful, powerful, spirit-filled and empowered men of God. But his speech is, is the longest given, uh, chronicled in this book. Now, there might be no real significance to this, but I would beg to differ. Because knowing the author, Luke, who was an historian and he was a doctor, he was a precise man who wrote a precise, orderly account for Theophilus. And so I think this tells us something about Stephen's ability to preach a a powerful uh, biblical theology, to preach a word to God's people and to, to the enemies of God. All in all, he was an extraordinary man of God. And God used this man in extraordinary ways to build his church. But there was more to Stephen. Stephen 
was not just this high and mighty preacher and apologist and the first martyr, perhaps. He was also just a very faithful, everyday guy. Stephen was one who excelled, who was very quick to do the the remarkably ordinary things in God's church. You guys, I listened to Pastor Kale's message on Acts 6, uh, verses 1 through 6. It was a wonderful message. And we learned about the, the, perhaps the first class of deacons in the church. What did we learn? There was uh, perhaps some, impar- some partiality going on. We, we don't know. Perhaps it was just an oversight. Either way, a helpless group of, of, of widows, the Hellenist widows, right? right? They, they were not being tended to. They were not being fed. Stephen was one of the men chosen to address that need so that the pastors, so that the elders, so that the apostles could focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. You know what he was doing? I'm sure he was delegating a lot of people to help these widows, but he was packing lunches for people. The great apologist, the great preacher, one of the great leaders of the church is packing lunch boxes and sandwiches for God's people, all unto the honor and the glory of God. That is faithfulness. That is godliness. That is Christ-likeness. When you're ready to do the marvelous, you're ready to, to see God do miraculous stuff, but you're also ready to do the everyday, the mundane. You see, the church was about real life, point one. And that means the church wasn't just about explosive growth and revival and peace and harmony, because that is how life looked in this early church. You've been learning about thousands of converts. You've been learning about people coming to this amazing saving knowledge and and love for the Lord, and that is phenomenal. Imagine having a baptism here, right, with 3,000 plus Massapequins coming to know Christ. That would be unreal, right? That's within God's power, and it would be unreal, but that's not the only thing that happens in the life of your church and in my church. We read about life, a life, a community life that looked so harmonious, right? You read it in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4. You see the people of God engaging in sweet fellowship, people being selfless, people being generous, people being transparent, people being joyful. That was, and that is, I'm sure here at Redeeming Grace, real life, sweet, pleasant, amazing, marvelous, people being healed and ministered to in powerful ways, people boldly walking out their faith in word and in deed in the public square, within the community, before the Sanhedrin for the early church, in the midst of family, friends, and acquaintances. But guess what? And I'm sure it won't be a surprise to most of you. Real life doesn't stop there. Because even in this early church, real life early on looked absolutely positively scary for them. 
in the very earliest portion of the book of Acts, things looked really bleak and scary. When? When Jesus announces to them, hey, I'm out. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be leaving you. Now, don't worry. I'm going to send my spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and he's going to descend and fill you and empower you in ways like, like it's never happened before. So don't worry. Now, despite all his assuring words, this unsettled, this was unsettling for the people. They had already experienced the loss of Judas to his treachery, right? For, because of his treachery, because of his sin. In their minds, they're thinking, we can't afford to lose Jesus, our Lord and our master. And then what do they experience after this? They experience ridicule, they experience mocking, they experience, you know, uh, isolated incidents of, of persecution. They experienced trials, they experienced deception, remember uh, Ananias and Sapphira? They experienced disunity. So they have this great life and then they all have this, this life that's, that causes them concern and confusion that was real life in the early church. And, and what I want to focus on just a little bit is a portion in verse 2 that I feel really speaks to this point about being real. In verse 2, it says, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Devout and godly men, notice what they did. They gave Stephen, an honorable and faithful man, they gave him a proper burial. Now we can just fly over that, those four words. We can give those four words short shrift. But if you think about it, this was an act of real life, intense boldness and courage on their part. And I say this because... During this time, Jewish law, we need to understand the context, forbade any type of proper burial, any type of funeral observances for a condemned criminal, which is what they considered this man Stephen to be. And let's say Stephen had just been uh, the, 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 the victim, quote-unquote, of some, some mob violence. Nevertheless, those who stoned him viewed him as a blasphemer, as a lawbreaker, even if it was trumped up charges, right? They said he was, he was speaking against God, Moses, the law, and the temple, right? You guys heard that a couple weeks ago. It took great boldness and great faithfulness for these men to rise and to give this man a proper burial. This was real life for the church, the early church. And I know this is real life for you as well, as you seek to love each other, as you seek to support each other, as you seek to encourage each other in the midst of sin, in the midst of your flesh, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of this world that is against you. But this is what we're called to 
to do. Now let's look at the last five words of that same verse. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. So they're faithful, they're bold, and they give this man the honor that he's due. And then we see what happens next. They make great lamentation over Stephen. I believe that in those five words right there, we don't just see the heart of faithful men. We see the heart, we see the nature of a faithful God. A God who shepherds and cares for and tends to his hurting people, his children. We see the men lamenting, but these men have been created in the image of a God who also laments. Redeeming Grace Fellowship, do you lament well? Is it a category in your life, individually and collectively? Without sounding patronizing, of course, we all know that one of the 66 books of the Bible is entitled Lamentations. But if you read beyond Lamentations, if you read through the Psalms, if you read through Job and Habakkuk and so much of the Bible, you encounter, you will encounter people, God's people, not just the pagans and the heathens, God's people lamenting. In fact, you see Jesus lamenting. Because why? Lamenting is how we're called to bring our sorrow and our cares and our burdens before the Lord. But too often, we neglect this aspect, this dimension of our Christian life. Why? Because too often we think, oh, you know, if I lament, what what I'm really engaging in is complaints. What I'm engaging in is just this this posture of, of whiny, crybaby, oh, woe is me, type of behavior that does not please God, that does not give honor to God, that does not encourage my fellow brother and sister in Christ. You know, I, we, we, we do need to understand there is a fine line between lamenting and whiny, sinful complaining. Nevertheless, it is a line that scripture, that I believe scripture both prescribes and describes to us that we are called to walk out as God's people, as God's church. And I know that some of us perhaps may not be inclined. Some of us um, just in our cultural kind of, you know, in, in our upbringing, in who we are in our, in our, in our, in our skin, right, your, your natural skin, this may not come so easily, right? Uh, I, I'm from, uh, it's, you know, I, I'm Asian American, okay? But I grew up in Rutherford, New Jersey, in a very Roman Catholic Irish American neighborhood. So I grew up wishing that I, ha- that I had red hair, right, and freckles. And uh, I wish that my last name was O'Brien or, you know, uh, Sexton or something like that. That's, that's just my experience. But uh, I, I grew up in an Asian American household. And in our household, um, we, we grew up, in, in our culture, um, we're, we're, we're raised to be kind of reserved and we're, we're, we're raised to, in this kind of shame-guilt culture where we're 
exposing yourself and being too transparent is just not the, the right thing to do. It's, it's shameful. So perhaps you're from a culture where you're not um, inclined to be more expressive of, of what is truly on your heart, what is, what is on your mind. I, whatever it might be, the Bible calls us to cry out to God. The Bible gives us clear instructions that we are to be a people who understand what it means to lament and how we are to lament. So we can ask questions like, to God, why, O Lord? Did you, did you realize that? That's straight out of Psalms, Psalm 13, Habakkuk 1. You can ask, as the people in the early church asked, Lord, why did this happen to Stephen? Why is this happening to our church? Why did you take such a powerful and exemplary deacon as Stephen when we need him now? When we need him most, in, in the midst of persecution, a uh, rising persecution, why did you take him? What, why, O oh Lord? You can ask God, why, God, why is this happening to me? Why did you take my wife from me? Why did you take my husband from me? A few weeks back, it was actually, I, I preached this sermon at my church, and just a couple days before I preached this sermon, I heard uh, about a friend's friend. Um, my friend was a pastor, and his friend was a pastor. That pastor, I think he was the father of three, um, married. He was um, on a beach somewhere in Louisiana, southern Louisiana, and a wave, he was in the shallow parts playing with his kids. A wave hit him in such a precise way that he fell in such a precise manner that he hit his head on something on the sand and he died on the spot. And his wife, in this brief kind of lament, says, Why, O oh Lord, did you take my husband and the father of our three kids now when we need him? You can ask God, Why, O oh Lord, am I not able to conceive? Why have I had the stillborn, the stillbirth. God, why don't I have a job when all my friends seem to be getting jobs and I'm much more qualified than they? Don't, don't go there, but, you know, we can ask those kinds of questions. We can, we can go to God and say, Lord, why do I feel so alone in my marriage? Why do I feel so alone? Why do I feel so alone in my church? Why do I feel like no one is for me? How long will I have to suffer? How long will this depression hold me captive? How long will mine enemies triumph over me? How long, O Lord, before you come again, Jesus? This is all straight out of the Bible. It's described for us and it's prescribed for us. And the word of God tells us in 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. So God is working, he's moving, he's in our midst, and yet he desires that we be a people who know what it is to lament. 
Our Father welcomes this. Our Father desires this. And I believe that our Father even delights in this. Let's really think about this. Fathers and mothers, when your children are confused, growing up in this crazy world, do you not want them to come to you and say, God, Dad, Mom, help me. Dad, Mom, I'm scared. I'm, I'm confused. Why? How? Should we not welcome them? when they have such questions, when they're trying to navigate the complexities of of life, when they need to, to grieve and understand their grief, when they need to understand their sin and the temptations that befall them? Do we not need to give them room and a space to lament? We lament because we're created in the image of God in the image of the one, as I shared earlier, who also lamented. Listen to the words of um, Mark Vrogop. He's an author, he's a pastor, and in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace to Lament of Lament. I know I'm, I'm really dwelling on this first point, but I really believe it's, it's important. The church was real about life. This is what he says. The Bible certainly calls us to come to the conclusion that God is good, to come to the conclusion that he is trustworthy, and that everything is going to work out, a la Romans 8, in accordance with his plan. At the same time, the Bible also helps us to see that there's a means by which we get there or a language that moves us along between the pull of, my life is really hard, and I can trust in God's sovereignty. That's the language of lament. And this is the language that these godly men and these godly people of this early church, this is the language they spoke. This is what they experienced with one another. And I ask, Redeeming Grace Fellowship, is this a practice in your collective lives as a church? Or is it foreign to you? When my second daughter, Naomi, passed away when she died unexpectedly, um, I read a book by um, this man, Nicholas Walterstorff. He's a professor of philosophy at Notre Dame University. It's a wonderful book called Lament for a Son. His son, I believe he was in his mid-20s, was um, mountain climbing in uh, Switzerland. And uh, that was just his passion that's what he did whenever he, you know, he just, it was, it, was, it was a hobby, a passion, and he was mountain climbing alone, and he either misgripped or he slipped, and he died. He, he got that phone call, Nicholas did. And this is what he writes. He says, how is faith to endure, O God, when you allow all this scraping and tearing on us? You've allowed rivers of blood to flow, mountains of suffering to pile up, sobs to become humanity's song, all without lifting a finger that we could see. You have allowed bonds of love beyond number to be painfully snapped. If you have not abandoned us, explain yourself. But almost in the same breath or in the same stroke of the pen or the click of the keyboard, he writes this. 
We strain to hear, but instead of hearing an answer, we catch sight of God himself scraped and torn. Through our tears, we see the tears of God. This is a lament, a beautiful lament, where he sees the reality, the existential reality of his pain, his suffering, his loss, but it doesn't end there because he gets to the gospel where Jesus was scraped and torn, where he is able to to interpret what he's feeling and, and see his tears through the tears of his father in heaven. This is what he says later on in the book. God is not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. It is said of God that no one can behold his face and live. I always thought this meant that no one could see his splendor and live. A friend said perhaps it meant that no one could see his sorrow and live. Or perhaps his sorrow is splendor. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. This is the type of incredible stuff that we need to be experiencing as a community that understands what lament is and how to lament well and rightly to the glory of God and to the good of one another, pointing each other to the gospel and the grace that we have in Christ Jesus and and, and, in his lament and in his work, in his love for us. And I want to finish this point with three just quick points of application as we try to understand what it means to lament and how to lament. Um, One, be quick to listen. Two, be patient with one another. And three, be gracious to those who are in hard seasons. Be quick to listen. Be patient with one another and be gracious to those who are in hard seasons. And I'm not saying that those who are not experiencing suffering, who are those who are trying to lament, are, you know, this, this goes to both sides of the story, so to speak. Those who will be lamenting, who are lamenting, must also be ready to listen, be patient, and be gracious. And what I mean by that is, In our flesh, our lament often is perhaps at times sinful, whiny, complaining, shaking our fist towards God. And hence, we do need to be humble and understand that we need adjustment, that we need help. But this comes as both sides of the lamenters, and those who are helping those in these seasons come together and and love one another. We need to understand what it means to to practice and, and honestly struggle and vocalize our sorrows before the Lord, before each other, as we live out this real life as a church. Point number two. The church went on with its mission. Up to this point in the early church, um, we've read about, we've learned about, in the book of Acts, isolated instances, pockets of persecution. But after this brutal execution of Stephen, the persecution in Jerusalem becomes systematic and widespread. Sanhedrin is utterly offended. The religious um, leadership 
Um, they are uh, insulted by Stephen's sermon. Now they are um, emboldened to unleash on this, this faction, Christ followers. And, and, and they start going for the jugular, as we might say. You're going to learn in, 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 in the coming weeks uh, of, of a man named Saul of Tarsus. Um, he is a man who was on a mission, right? You're going to read about how he goes uh, from house to house, right? Dragging off men and women. We read about it today, right? There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Do you know who Saul was? You know what he was the leader of? He was the leader of the Geheimstaatspolizei, right? That's the official mispronunciation of the German word for Gestapo. He was the leader of the official secret police of the organized Sanhedrin, the religious order, and their mission was to ravage the church. His unpure and unholy passion. You guys ever sing that song, Give Me One Pure and Holy Passion? Give Me One Magnificent Obsession? His unpure, unholy passion, his obsession was to exterminate all things Christ Jesus. And his fury stopped at nothing as we read. He didn't just take out the men. He took out the women, the young, and the old. And if you doubt this testimony by Luke, um, the picture is, is totally consistent with his own testimony elsewhere in Acts and even in his epistles. And while he wasn't directly responsible for Stephen's execution, he approved of the execution. So in Acts chapter 26, I know you'll get to it in, um, you know, in later months. This is what Luke writes in verses 10 and 11. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. A little earlier in Acts chapter 22, verses 4 and 5, it says, I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. In his own epistle, in the book of the great book of Galatians, chapter one, verse 13, he says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And when you get to Acts chapter nine, you're gonna hear about how the church experiences peace upon Paul's conversion. His life so embodied the persecution of the church that when he became a convert, they experienced this widespread peace. In the midst of this real life, the church is scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria And guess what happens? They continue doing the work of the Lord. 
they continue preaching and teaching and sharing their gospel witness. In fact, it seems to us from the text, and as you read through certain portions, junctures of the book of Acts, right, you hear persecution, the word of God spread, the word of God being proclaimed, sinners coming to know Christ Jesus. We see how the church grows and expands through scattering, through persecution. Why is this so? Because the word of God tells us, right? Satan will not prevail. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. So these persecuted, scattered believers, they went on with the mission of God. They go about preaching the word. And uh, for those of you, you hear that word preaching, it may bring to mind me standing before you at a pulpit, Pastor Caleb or whoever else stands before you. Maybe you think of John Piper or whatever other preacher you have a man crush or a woman crush on, and that's all totally fine. But that's not what you should think in this situation, in many situations. Because um, what it basically means is they brought the good news of the gospel. They literally evangelized as they were scattered. They were dispersed, right, to these outer regions, to even Samaria. But that word disperse is a a wonderful word. It just doesn't mean that they were scattered. It means that they were sowing as well. That's what they did. Scattered due to systematic, widespread persecution, and yet they're sowing the seeds of the gospel. And let's not ignore the three words in verse 1 at the tail end. They are scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Why weren't the apostles scattered? Why didn't they experience this diaspora the way that the rest of the church seems to have experienced this? We don't know for sure. If you read through the commentaries, right, you read through those who really have studied the text in the original, some say that the Hebraic Christians weren't targeted as much because they seem to have still loved the law and cherished the law. So, so the Sanhedrin allowed them to stay. But the Hellenistic Christians, they were the ones who were scattered. They were the ones who were forced out of Jerusalem, and hence they were the ones who We're sowing the seeds to these regions outside of Jerusalem. We we don't know for sure. But what we can take from this passage, this portion of early church history, is you don't need your pastors. You don't need your leaders to do the work of God. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying The word of God makes it clear that you are to obey and submit to your leaders for they are keeping, what, account of, they're they're, they're shepherding your souls and they'll be held uh, accountable for your souls. And the Bible says clearly to to help them do this with, with joy and not groaning. 
The Bible says to submit yourselves to the biblically qualified leadership of the local church. Don't hear what I'm not saying. What I'm, not, what I'm saying, however, is you don't need Pastor Mike to be sharing the gospel with your coworker and your family member. You don't need him there giving you step-by-step instructions to do this. Why? Because you have Christ Jesus. You have the Spirit of God. You have his perfect word, his sufficient word. You have the power of prayer. You have each other. So you don't need your leaders to do these things that you're called to be faithful to. Another thing you need to understand is God, and this is, um, this is from Tim Keller, a great, 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 powerful, pithy saying, but nevertheless, something that we need to understand. God never calls you to himself. He never calls you radically in without sending you radically out. If you're a child of God, if you're a follower of Christ, you've experienced this powerful radical transformation the gospel doing its work in you, saving you from your sin, saving you to obedience. But guess what? It, 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 it saves you to, to do the work of God as you are scattered from this place. In Redeeming Grace Fellowship, I don't know if you understand this, but when we break... I don't know what you do afterwards if you hang out and have coffee and and hopefully you engage in some really wonderful fellowship together. When you leave this place, you will be experiencing pretty much what this early church in its real life experienced. You will be dispersed. You will be scattered. And it may not be for the reason of being persecuted per se, although you'll experience that out there, I'm sure. But when you go from this place, you will be scattered and you have the same call that this church had to go on with your mission, sharing Christ and bringing his hope, his gospel to the ends of the earth. The church went on with its mission as it was scattered, even without its leaders. And it was through this scattering that this church, these babes, many of these Christians were new converts. They were babes in Christ. And yet they grew up, and they grew up quickly. And they became faithful foot soldiers of Christ, faithful counselors, faithful servant leaders, pushed forward in the mission of the church. I was kind of encouraged and a little confused when I first got here because people were like, what are you doing here? (laughs) You're preaching? And I was like, "Uh, I think so. I hope so. And at first, I was like, hmm, maybe Pastor Caleb didn't communicate something. I'm I'm sure that's not the case. But then I was encouraged because it makes so much sense in light of what I'm preaching here. It doesn't matter who's preaching here as long as there's faithful preaching. It doesn't matter who's out there sharing the gospel with your fellow um, 
student on campus or your son-in-law or daughter-in-law who doesn't know Christ and gives you so much grief about your faith. It just matters that you do what you're called to do as you're scattered as the church in these places, in these realms where you have influence, where you have relationships, where you have the gospel of Jesus Christ. That leads us to our last point. The church brought joy to its enemies, to enemies. Let me just read, reread that last portion. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Philip, one of the men who were chosen to serve as deacons, he goes down to a place called Samaria. And um, to call this place, you know, uh, an inconvenience, an inconvenient place for him to go to, an unpleasant would be um, really just, um, just, yeah, a, a massive, massive understatement. This Jewish man who would, in his former life before knowing Christ, would avoid the region of Samaria entirely because that's what good Jewish people did, right? Samaria was between um, the northern and southern regions where Jewish people did their life. They would, instead of taking the direct route through Samaria, they would kind of take the long inconvenient route. Why? Because many of you know, the Samaritans were the half-breeds. They were the heretics. They were the people who compromised themselves, their purity. They were the ones who only, for whatever reason, held uh, on to the, the first five books, the Pentateuch. They, they um, constructed their own temple on a different mount, and they worshipped a god who was essentially just this hybrid god comprised of their old god, Yahweh, and any other god they could get their hands onto for whatever reason. And so they were a despised people. They were heathens, and they were hated What does Philip do? Philip, who's experienced this real life in the church of Jerusalem, not a hunky-dory life, not a prosperity, health and wealth life, but a life of understanding what it means to take up the cross and follow Jesus, a life of understanding what sacrifice means and should look like, a life of lament, and sharing of lament. And as the church is scattered, he goes on with this mission to enemies. And so he goes straight to the city of Samaria. And what does he do? He proclaims to them the Christ. And, and we see and we hear about crowds paying attention to, to, he was another great preacher and apologist, by the way. 
right? These wonderful deacons, right? You think, oh, it's just the pastors who have to be able to defend and, 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 and preach the word and teach good doctrine. No, you deacons, you people of God, we're all called to this. These powerful deacons sharing the gospel, evangelizing, winsomely, persuasively, with a wisdom that came from the Spirit of God. We hear about unclean spirits crying out with loud voices coming out of of people. And what does this all result in? Much joy in that city. In a region, in a city where there was animosity towards this man, Philip. Animosity towards the people he represented. Redeeming Grace Fellowship, this is a church that I every so often ask my church. But if this church were to, for whatever reason, close its doors, so to speak, if this church, for whatever reason, had to to move on out of Massapequa, this, this area, would the people of Massapequa notice? I know it's a sobering question, And it's a sobering question for me as I think about what we've failed to do in the community that we're in. But I believe, given what we've just read, the effects of a gospel, gospelized people in the realness of life, on mission, bringing joy to the city of Samaria, I believe it's a question that we must ask ourselves every so often, have we brought joy to the people of Englewood Cliffs, of Fort Lee, of Massapequa, or wherever you are from? Have you brought the joy of knowing Jesus to your parts, to your relationships? And I ask you this question not to heap any shame or guilt or anything like that, But as I prayed, I pray, and I hope that it will bring you to a place and me to a place of repentance. A place of understanding that I need to grow. I need to change. I need to speak. I need to be more bold. I need to be more compassionate. I need to be more discerning. I need to be more about Jesus Christ. Who did what? Who died for us? And who were we? Enemies of God. And he did so by being born of a virgin miraculously in all purity. Living a life where he was tempted in every way, in ways that we can't even understand and yet was without sin. And instead of receiving the due worship and honor and glory. Instead, the Bible says, any man who hangs upon a tree is cursed. He hung upon that tree that we deserve to die upon. And in a sense, as we sang earlier, the father turned his face away. And in a sense, Jesus became the enemy that we, we are in our flesh, in our nature, in our will. And he gave to us his righteousness. 
He took upon himself our sin, our guilt, our shame, our isolation. Because in and of ourselves, we are what? Natural born enemies. There's no community. We're a community because God brought us out of estrangement and, and isolation and brought us together as brothers and sisters. He undid all of that and he made us this body of Christ that you are, Redeeming Grace Fellowship. And it's out of all these things, it's out of the the power of the gospel, the message of the gospel, and the implications of the gospel that he calls us to bring joy to enemies even. As people come through these doors and they see you worshiping and giving, raising your hands up and lifting your hearts up unto the Lord, being real to one another, Reach out to them. Don't consider those people, those people. Because that is who God reached, those people, us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word today. Lord, um, I pray that um, these folks would consider, would weigh these words would cry out to you and seek your spirit's help and understanding implications, understanding what they are now in light of the gospel, in light of your love for them, how they are to respond, how they are to act, how they are to speak, how they are to repent. And Lord, I pray that um, as, as we see it so clearly described in, in this book of Acts, but also prescribed in your exhortations, your commands to us. I pray, Father, that we, that we would be faithful, that this church would be faithful. I pray that it would be faithful in doing this life together where they are edifying one another, where they are humbly submitting to each other and loving as you've loved them, but also evangelizing and being on this mission that you've called them to, to the ends of the earth, whatever that might look like in their lives. Thank you, Father, if I've said anything, and I probably have, that's just ridiculous or didn't need to be spoken. I pray that you would just clear that from their minds. Lord, do the great work in, in their hearts and in our lives that only you can do. Thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.